0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: And now a word from our sponsor, SixSense. SixSense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com.
2: Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage, By bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spymasters, intelligence officers and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. Quit. Fail. Give up. Rick Diaz refused to acknowledge the meaning of these terms. This week's episode is a humdinger straight from the pages of a comic book, except it happens to be true. Rick was a young man in the United States Air Force who was just about to attend the FBI Academy when tragedy struck. He was out jogging along the side of the road in West Texas when a truck hit him and drove off. Within a matter of weeks, Rick would lose his father in a plane crash and his left arm would be left permanently damaged. To find out the rest of Rick's journey, you'll need to listen, but from the title of this week's episode, you'll know that he overcame discrimination, prejudice, and struggles with his own mental health to become the first disabled case officer in CIA history. Rick Diaz, one arm, twice the punch. I
0: was deployed to Athens, Greece, as an intelligence officer and uh, there were a group of us that were running around that area doing some operations and we were supporting um rc-135 flights over uh southern comfort for turkey for the part of the gulf war and there's a group of us that were hanging out together we would run around athens we would do a lot of things at that time frame the terrorist group 17 november was hot and heavy in the area and they had conducted several assassinations during those years, particularly the year that I was there. And I had a friend of mine, his name was Ronald Stewart. He lived there in the area while the rest of us lived in a secure facility at a hotel that the Air Force had taken over, but he lived on his own. And we'd hang out together, we'd go out to drinking and doing all kinds of stuff in the city at night. About a week after I left, in the first week in March, I got notified that he was killed by 17 November come to find out they were tracking all of us at that time period and he was the softest target. So he was picked, unfortunately, he was the one that was killed and not the rest of us. But that kind of gave me a wake up call and I became obsessed with the study of terrorism after that. And I became obsessed with, you know, figuring out what happened. And I eventually did find out what happened once I got in the agency and it was true that a lot of us were being tracked, but I can't go into detail on that. But That is kind of a watershed moment, kind of woke me up. The second one was when I was working undercover in Turkey. I was working with the Office of Special Investigations, going after the local Turkish mafia for the sale of black cash and black market goods from the local base there. And I was working undercover, and unfortunately, my cover was blown by a corrupt Turkish official. And I ended up in the back room of a village of a store with eight Turkish mafia guys armed to the teeth and pretty pissed off at me about who I was. And I figured I had to talk my way out of the situation. I couldn't fight my way out. I eventually got out. And I got exfilled out of the country, my wife and I, by the skin of our teeth. But again, another watershed moment that said, okay, this is what I got to do because, hey, this is what I'm good at. And the third thing was my accident that pushed me in that direction. So
2: You were in the OSI?
0: I was on a JDAT team, with joint drug task force with them. So I was assigned to them, but I was military police, but I was assigned to them. And I worked a lot with those guys I and mean, we did a lot of work, but that's where I learned uh, tradecraft was working with that, I learned how to do car pickup meetings. I learned how to do asset meetings and I learned how to run my own operations. And again, that really inspired me. And the biggest thing is being able to work without a gun and be able to talk my way out of a situation, which helped me later on. In the agency, when we were operating one night in another war zone, and we were in a truck there were about it's about three o'clock in the morning. there were three of us, and I was in the back seat. I had a translator and two other folks in the car and we pulled out of this compound, and the guy pulls out or steps out in front of us with an ak47 and I had to make a decision in a moment's notice one of three things: run the guy over, but we were in a thin-skinned vehicle, it wasn't armed. I knew that if it didn't work, he could shoot right through the car. Number two was, I was a pretty good shot at the time. Um, I only missed two shots on target when I qualified, but it was pitch black dark. I would have to make a shot at about 60 yards. I wasn't taking the rest. The third item was the big trust my translator, to talk our way out of the situation, which is that I remembered back to when I was with the OSI, when I got stuck in that back room and made the choice to talk our way out of it, and we're able to do it. I trusted the translator, and he talked us out of the situation, and we got out of there.
2: So one of the things that I find quite interesting, you've overcame all of these obstacles, but after your accident and your the death of your father, there was another law that you went through, right? I'm speaking mm-hmm. specifically to mental health. Could you just tell right. our listeners a little bit sure. more about some of those yeah. like, uh, struggles and challenges that you faced on that level.
0: I mean, when you get a situation like I had, and you had unemployment, the loss of your arm, the loss of my father, and then I had my son to take care of and my wife to take care of, and figured out how I was going to do that. I mean, that takes you into depression was pretty fast. I remember we moved to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and I'd gotten a, a job, but I lost it pretty quickly because of the contract fell through. And I found ourselves unemployed and up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, just sitting in this little house with no money coming in, trying to figure out what we were gonna do. My wife really saved my life. I mean, she was the one that got me off the ground, made me go buy a computer and started putting in for jobs for me to get work. She really pushed really hard and really getting through that. And I was also on some medication that for the pain in my arm, because I still suffer today, that was really messing up my mind, and all that combined together was not good. But we eventually got work, and I eventually got where I was, but the other aspect to this is, sometimes you can have one side of depression, where, okay, I'm gonna do this, here's, I'm gonna overcome it, but then you go too far the other way. And I went too far the other way, trying to prove myself. You know, People always told me, no, you can't do this because you're disabled. And I fought back and I deployed and I was gone more than I was home, which I missed my family growing up, you know, caused depression at home because I was trying so hard to push myself. And I think finally decided to retire to find that counterbalance where I'm right where I need to be. But, you know, I made a lot of mistakes in doing that because I pushed too hard the other way with depression, trying to overcome it and then prove myself. And then I totally forgot about the family that I left behind.
2: And your wife was a CIA officer as well, is that correct?
0: She is. She's also a retired officer as well. And that made it really good because before I could go out and go somewhere and she wouldn't know what was going on. But it also made it harder for me because anytime I go somewhere and I tell her where I'm at, she'll look it up and say, oh, well, no, you didn't really go there. Here's what you did. So uh, kind of funny, but but it was good because she understood and it was really important.
2: Just to clarify parts of the story, so sure. you were in the Air Force when the accident happened, or you were just leaving the Air Force when the accident I was,
0: I was in the Air Force, and I was uh, about two weeks away from the FBI Academy, and then all that got turned around after the accident.
2: And the FBI told you that they weren't interested after your accident, right?
0: Exactly, because I couldn't shoot a gun. And then the Air Force said the same thing, but... I've been in more war zones since then and fired more weapons since then than I ever had in my entire life, even in the military.
2: Walk us up to the period when you end up joining. So you said you wanted to prove yourself. You joined right. the I, the Inspector General's office. Did you join the Inspector General always with an eye towards becoming a case officer?
0: Exactly. In fact, I remember the the head of the Inspector General's office, when I told him I was leaving, Looked at me, he goes, This is what you were always gunning for, isn't it? I said, you got what you wanted. So, he wasn't very happy about it, but you know, I did what I had to do, and that was my way to get in, and I did.
2: And how did you meet Kofar Block?
0: Um, I was doing an inspection with the inspector general's office, and I was in charge of doing an evaluation of CTC. It was more of a to see how things were going and make sure everything was going okay, any problems or issues. And he and I sat down and had some long conversations. I was hooked. I mean, I I had it in my blood. And I said, this is what I want. This is my way in. And I was eventually able to get in. But I still ran into a lot of obstacles after that.
2: Tell us a little bit more about some of those obstacles, because I know it wasn't. It was very far from plain sailing for you to become a case officer.
0: Oh, my God. It was difficult as hell. First problem was getting the weapons qualifications. I called down to where they did the weapons qualifications. I had somebody call down for me, and I kept getting pushed back and pushed back because they said, this was after 9-11, they had plenty of people going out to war zones, and there was no time to accommodate somebody with a disability at this time. And they kept pushing back, pushing back. And I was finally found somebody at headquarters, an office there that was willing to qualify me locally up in the headquarters area. And the first big problem with that was figuring out, okay, how's this guy going to shoot a gun with one on uh, what's what going to have to do so i would say uh, necessity is the mother of invention and i figured it out i was able to put my holster on my left side and i was able to reverse my magazines behind the holster and i set up a system where you know i could draw a gun shoot and clear my weapon and reload all in less than three seconds and fire off like four shots in four seconds or something like that. I was able to fix jams as well. I was able, because I was able to use that adaptation and figure it out. I only missed two shots on target when I qualified during that period. But then I ran into another obstacle when I tried to become a case officer, which took me another about four years of being denied, denied, denied. And I finally got in, but I had to do the weapons course there. And I got a phone call from, One of the guys on the range, and he he told me, I know about you. And he said, your first qualifications was illegal. You should have been qualified. And that there's no way in hell you're going to fire on my range. And I said, okay. And I pushed. And one of the few times in my career where I actually got a hold of somebody, a contact that I had that was kind of supporting my career. And two days later, I was on the range firing, and I only missed two shots. And I remember I deployed to a war zone after that and I saw the guy as I was going to the claim barrel. I turned around, I looked at him and he started stuttering and said, I didn't realize you qualified. I said, I told you I'm not going anywhere and we're not going anywhere, meaning those that are disabled. But again, I also ran into the problems during the qualification to become a case officer, of course, because there were a lot of folks that believed I was going to put other people in danger because of my disability. I remember I had an exercise when the instructor actually told me. He stopped the exercise and said, You know, asked me what the hell I was doing, that I was only going to serve to get people killed and that I should walk away from the class. And, you know, I looked at him again. I said, I'm not going anywhere. And I graduated and I finished without a single adaptation. In fact, almost 90% of the instructors that I went up against for the exercises had no idea I was disabled because I was able to develop. My own type of disguises, disguise my arm when I needed to. I was able to figure out how to take notes with one arm while I was driving, use Velcro on a dashboard with a notepad. I was able to do a lot of things, but I was able to overcome it and I graduated.
2: Which arm did you lose and which arm were you predominant with at the time of the accident?
0: Uh, It was my right arm, but I was primarily left handed, so I was very fortunate.
2: For our listeners who've never been in the CIA, Help us understand some of those terms that you use. So, case officer, you sure. left the IEG, you're in the CIA, but you're not a case officer. What are you before you're a case officer, and what actually is a case officer?
0: Sure. I was basically a support operations officer, which you kind of support operations. But a case officer is an individual that actually runs operations. They actually run spies or run assets. There's a big misnomer out there when they use the term spy. We're not spies. We're the guys that recruit spies. We're the guys that Spots has developed, and we handle spies. But we are not spies ourselves. But a lot of people use that concurrently t- together, but it's not. Two totally different things. And we are case officers. We handle cases. We handle operations. We manage things. Whereas the spies are the guys that are out there taking the risk. And they're the ones that are getting themselves deep into enemy territory, collecting information.
2: Operations support people, that's not a group of people that we hear much about. Are they part of the director of operations?
0: These are the people that help support the operation. So they can be anywhere from, a, say, a case management officer to just a regular support officer. These are all the people in the background that help make things go. And we can't do our jobs without them. They're very integral and very important. These are the people that work at the desk. These are the people that support everything that we do, and we can't do anything without them because I mean they are like the integral part of making things go. They're the ones that put the oil in the machine.
2: Tell us a little bit more about that experience of becoming a case officer. What kind of things were you up to after that?
0: I mean the biggest thing for doing that is being able to go out there and be able to look at what priorities are important to our government. And they're given to us, here's what we're looking for, and then find the right people that can answer those questions. It could be a terrorist. It could be a scientist. It could be whatever it can be. It could be almost anything, as long as they can get that information. But it's up to us to manipulate those people, spot, assess, develop, and eventually recruit those people. It's like uh, human dynamics. I think we're an expert in human dynamics, understand how people operate, how to get people to do things they wouldn't normally do. And again, but the important part of that is not just to be able to do that, but to look at these people as human, to be able to understand the language, culture, all that is extremely important in order to make this work.
2: Can you tell us what goes into the makings of a case officer?
0: Well, the biggest thing is that we're probably pretty much all type A personalities. We can talk about ourselves all day. Being able to put a rein on that sometimes is a problem. And that's that's the whole thing. Because those are the type of people you need to go out to be able to do this type of work, to put the risk out there. But again, it just takes a lot of patience, somebody with a lot of patience, understanding, somebody that understands human dynamics, somebody that has empathy. Empathy is probably one of the most important things in the world to be able
2: to accomplish his missions. We'll be right back after this.
1: And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI...
2: You mentioned at the beginning of our chat about being the son of migrants. Did you ever experience any prejudice or, or any other animus toward you because of your background?
0: I have in certain aspects. I'll give you a good example. Living in Northern Virginia where the agency is at, uh, I remember the day that I got accepted into the agency. I was wearing a, you know, I had my best suit on and we went out to Lansdowne to a restaurant there. In, in Virginia, uh, it was a country club. I had my family with me, and you know, I was all proud, walking the front door with my suit on. And uh, this older white lady throws her keys at me and t- asks me not to scratch her car. And I'm just looking in shock, and my kids couldn't figure out what was going on. And you know, after I explained to her that I don't work there, she just started laughing and kind of walked away. But and that's after again after all the hard work getting in there, giving the agency. Now, something like that happened. I mean, other occasions where I was at Lowe's with my daughter. You know, a couple of weeks later, and some guy asked me to load up his truck.
2: It was more being part of the general culture. It wasn't necessarily something that you encountered in the agency.
0: Not really within the agency as much. I mean, I mean, right now, I mean, it's unfortunate, but there there aren't a lot of very senior Hispanics or senior people of minority in, within the agency in very senior levels. It's unfortunate, I'm hoping someday that's going to change, but it's tough to move up. And that's kind of the whole, there's a lot of politics involved and so forth. And I'm hoping someday there's going to be a Hispanic head the agency, but who knows if that's ever going to happen.
2: One of the things that I find quite interesting with your story as well is you've just had so many barriers and obstacles to overcome. And the obvious question or a question that many people will think of is, how do you keep going? What are some of the inspirations that you had? I know that your father in particular was quite an important one.
0: Yeah, my father and my mother both. I mean, they inspired me growing up not to quit. You know, we had a lot of things that happened to us growing up. I remember my father being kicked out of a store because they thought we were suspicious out of a grocery store. I remember... Not being served actually not being served as a restaurant with my family when I was younger. My father never gave up. My father could have stayed down in the valley in Texas and continued being a migrant worker, but he chose to move us out of that and put us, you know, up in Illinois where he eventually became a manager and looked truck sales, but he ended up moving up and finishing some college. But that inspired me a lot. My mother as well. My mother's been through a lot of the loss of my father and everything that's happened. To her, she's on like right now, she's on dialysis and she's older, but she's pushing forward and she's not giving up, she's had a tough life. But they both have inspired me to push on. And then my wife, especially, uh, has been there for me to support me and help me get through a lot of the hard times. She's kind of my cheerleader.
2: I know that Virginia Hall has also been an inspiration yeah, for yes. you. We've yes. spoken about this at length, Rick. Could you just yeah. give our listeners a brief refresher? Who is Virginia Hall? And why are you inspired by her story?
0: Virginia Hall is what they call it—the one-legged lady. Uh, she operated in World War II. She worked for the SOE and for the OSS both. She ran a lot of operations behind enemy territory. She never gave up. She learned how to parachute with one leg. She operated behind war zones. She ran operations all with a disability, and that really was a big inspiration for me. There are a lot of things that we both. Kind of funny. There are a lot of similarities that we have. Uh, we both lost our fathers at the same age. We both were injured at the same age. We both ran some similar operations, not exactly the same, uh, but there are a lot of similarities between both of us. And I thought that was kind of unique. I think I was able to find 13 or 14 different things that were very similar, if not identical, to our lives, kind of parallel. Really inspirational to me. There's no way I'm going to be able to fill her shoes, but. Or I did, but I couldn't. But she definitely was my biggest inspiration to continue on.
2: After you became a case officer, how much longer were you in the CIA? It
0: it took me eight years to become a case officer. I was in another 12 years, and I retired at the 20-year point.
2: Did you see any changes in the way that people with disabilities or people that were differently abled were treated in the intelligence community and the agency and the clandestine service. Tell us about, did you see other people coming through? Were there other people that you met or were you really a sort of one-off?
0: Yeah, that's a good question, You know, when I was in, I knew at that time that there was nobody else, uh, that I was doing what I was doing or done what I had done. And I tried to set up a program, then the agency to bring in disabled vets that were disabled in combat to basically do the same thing I was doing. And I remember I talked to every single division chief, almost every single division chief, and said, Here's what I want to do. When I want to bring these guys in. And it's funny, the biggest story uh, response I always always get, yes, we're very supportive of the disabled. They'd make a great support officer. And I'm like, No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I want them to be a case officer. No, no, they'll make a great support officer. And that's all I kept getting is that and uh, I tried to fight that and you know, I think it's starting to change a bit now. I think they're working out. Some guys that come through with, I think, some lost limbs and so forth, but we're still not where we need to be. And I think a lot of it is that people don't understand or believe that we can do the same job. And that's kind of the reason why, you know, I was trying to tell my story because, you know, those people that are disabled out there, there's a chance for you to do anything you want to do. Don't let anything stop you. I mean, Virginia Hall proved that. I proved that. But... Again, not to give up. If you have a dream, go for it. and Don't let a disability stop you from doing that.
2: Is that part of the reason why you share your story? To inspire people that may think that things like the CIA are not for them?
0: Yeah, no, definitely. People can do whatever they want to do. I mean, it's, and that's the biggest reason why I do talk about it. It's because I really believe hard that you can do whatever you want to do. And you shouldn't let a disability hold you back from accomplishing what you want to do. I mean, it was a hard fight, and there were a lot of um, challenges, but there were also a lot of casualties with my family because of what I did. And I have a lot of regrets on that side of it. I mean, I don't regret what I accomplished, but I do regret the challenges and what happened with my family. It was very difficult, but I was able to do it. I mean, the biggest thing is just time away, being away from the family, trying to prove myself every time when something came up, There's this assignment, you know, I want somebody to go there. I was, boom, I was there. I never said no, because I was afraid if I did say no, I wouldn't get that chance again. And I was always volunteering. I was always gone, TDY quite a bit overseas to do a bunch of stuff. But because I felt like I always had to prove myself. And now that after all these years, I realized I never really had to prove myself because I was doing it. And there was no reason for me to have to be gone, you know. Like before I retired, I was up, gone, TDI almost almost a year gone before I retired. And I didn't have to do that. Now that I realize it and see back, it's like, okay, I already proved myself. Why do I have to keep proving myself over and over again? And it cost a lot. I mean, it was really, you know, my family, it was, it was really tough, especially my wife, me being gone. I
2: mean, Tell us a little bit more about the career of a case officer. Is most of that spent overseas? Is some of it spent? out in Langley. Give us an idea of like the kinds of things that you were doing during the course of your career.
0: I mean, the biggest thing is getting out there and doing the mission, getting out there on assignments, you know, spot assessing, developing, recruiting. And then from there, your career goes into management, how to run operations, managing people that do it. And eventually back to headquarters where you could be managing a group, managing a division, or managing a section of people that are supporting those operations. So you have to have headquarters time and time in the field and going back and training. Those are the three biggest things.
2: And I know that you've got some quite yeah. interesting stories surrounding yeah. how you adapted yeah. to various environments.
0: I wasn't really an anomaly when it came to looking for disguises for me because the folks that handle that really never had anybody come with a disability that really needed and how to figure it out. For example, you know, in dress and clothes, how was I going to be able to change outfits? How was I going to be able to come up with something? And again, I said before, necessity is the mother of invention. I ended up kind of doing my own disguise. But if you look back in the room, there's a stove back there with a vest. Okay, that's something that I invented. It has Velcro all the way down the back. And I was able to have my black vest underneath there, and I set it up so that when had to do something. I had to switch clothes. I was able to grab that and just pull it off with one hand. And I was able to put it into a bag and change the way I look, change my disguise. But I came up with black vest, which is also there, over the drape over there on the bottom, that I've also sewed in one side of it with a ballistic vest so I could slip it on and off in about two seconds and be able to, if something happened, I was boom, able to grab it, throw it on and go because nobody else can figure out how to do it. So I had that one specially designed. But yeah, I have a variety of things I've done with clothes, Velcro. I use Velcro a lot to hold my arm in place when I'm doing an operation, or I use a modified strap to hold my arm up, or if I need to hide it inside of my clothes and so forth. But yeah, I come up. There are a variety of different things that I came up with that you know hopefully somebody will be able to use it after me.
2: If you were to look back on your time in the agency, what's the one story that you would say this? exemplifies my time in the Central Intelligence Agency?
0: A lot of times within the agency, you have to make conscious decisions. A lot of them are ethical decisions. And I remember I was working on this case where, you know, I was dealing with this guy who was an alcoholic. He loved Johnny Walker Blue Label. And, you know, that was the biggest thing is him drinking and us going out and me having discussions with him. And I spent about a year with this guy. And then finally, at the end, I remember his daughter came up to me because we're good friends with their family. And she said, please stop giving my dad drinks because it's not good at home. So I had to make a conscious decision. Do I continue with that or do I walk away from the case? Ethically, you know, it could get worse at home for them. Or do I want to get this head on the wall and this is something I got? you know, for the agency and I I made a conscious decision not to do it. I stopped the case there and I got in some trouble for it, but it's there that I made the conscious decision not to do it because it's just it just wasn't right. And I don't regret it to today because it's you know it's the right thing to do. But a lot of times in our careers, I mean we have a lot of ethical decisions to make. In fact I actually have taught a class on making ethical decisions and You know, I do have a large collection of things that I've collected over the years. I use that as examples and kind of talk to the class. Here's what's going on. You're the case officer. What are you going to do? And then they decide what they're going to do, and then we talk about it. But to me, yeah, that's the biggest thing uh, for me was making that decision.
2: I was just wondering, in terms of this interview, in terms of just introducing the SpyCast audience to Rick Diaz, is there any other part of your story that you think is important that we haven't touched on?
0: The biggest part of the thing is being able to do things despite any type of disability you might have or whether it's, you know, whatever it is, that not to give up on what you're trying to do. That the job that we did and do is very difficult because, again, you're dealing with human dynamics, which you don't always know how people are going to react to different things. But to be able to figure that out and work without a net and to be successful at it.
2: Is there anything that you would like our listeners to walk away with? We've got the coronavirus. We've got a lot of people furloughed. We've got a lot of problems in the world, but your story is quite an uplifting one. What words of wisdom would you give to our listeners?
0: Well, the biggest thing is to never give up. I know there are a lot of people that are out of work right now. A lot of problems or issues. But the key to success is not giving up and working as hard as you can until you get what you want. And uh, I know it's not easy, I mean, I've been unemployed myself, but have had a lot of issues. The key is not to give up, and not to give up hope and to keep fighting hard no matter what. Because there's always light at the end of the tunnel.
2: The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.
1: cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.